0: This will not stand. That can be justice for all. Human rights are women's rights. Change the world.
1: Go episode two. No turning back now. Uh, This is Mark Leon Goldberg, your host of Global Dispatches and the managing editor of UN Dispatch. We have a great show for you today. I speak at length with uh, Laura Say, who is better known to you and to the world as Texas in Africa, the prolific Twitter user. Uh, Laura is a specialist in African politics and African conflicts, and we have a pretty deep and engaging discussion about the uh, situation in DR Congo. Uh, But we also talk about her life, her career, how the daughter of a preacher man in Texas became one of the most recognizable uh, uh, experts on uh, African conflict and politics in America today before we dive into the interview a little programming note uh, a listener viewer reader uh, reached out to me suggesting a different title of this podcast so i called it global dispatches uh for a couple of reasons one you know because it has that tie to un dispatch which is what i'm probably most known for but i wanted to uh suggest something that was more you know beyond just the un that was global in scope, uh, because that, I think, is the perspective that I want to bring to these conversations. But it had been pointed out to me that Global Dispatches is kind of a generic name and that it is not easily Googleable. Googleable, I suppose. Um, And uh, looking on iTunes, in fact, there is another podcast called Global Dispatches. But this is a podcast by the accounting firm Ernest & Young, and it seems to focus uh, on international tax law. Uh, so I'm fairly certain that within a couple of weeks, we can grow uh, this thing and dominate Google rankings and surely show those pencil pushers, number crunchers, that Ernest and Young, uh, who the real Global Dispatch's audience is. Okay, so let's talk to Laura. Here we are, my conversation with Dr. Laura Say. So so you just uh, drove up from Atlanta, correct?
2: I flew up, yeah. Okay. So I have um, – yeah, I kind of accidentally sold my house really <laughs> fast in Atlanta. The market's picking up. It's good. Um, but, yeah, so I've actually already moved out, but I'm still – Living in hotels in Atlanta, okay. <laughs> but I'm here okay. right now, so it's just a lot of, a lot of so, chaos right so now. So you
1: are you are uh, between Morehouse and Colby College, correct?
2: Right, right. So I'm just finishing up at Morehouse, and then I will be moving to Colby this fall.
1: Neat. Okay. So so let's talk. This sounds. This I'm, I'm sure. super excited to be to be speaking with you. Um, obviously, you know, I've, I've followed your work for a long time. We've, you know, we've met once, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's a global initiative. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so can I, uh, so you, for how long were you at, at Morehouse?
2: Uh, four years.
1: Okay. And what, uh, what classes were you teaching there?
2: so my um, so in academics, you have a called a line, so that's sort of the the specialty that that the professor who has that job fills um, and my line is the African politics and comparative politics kind of slash conflict line um, at Morehouse so I taught seven different classes um, on just about anything relating to the developing world um, African politics course on conflict and conflict resolution, um, course on the politics of activism and advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so a pretty wide variety, international, you know, just kind of anything international um, I could be called on to teach.
1: So was, you know, something I was thinking about it. was the um, experience of teaching African history at a historically black college, were there, I mean, I mean, was there like a special emphasis on African studies? Was it, you know, elevated by the administration? Was there was were students maybe taking to it more than at a traditional liberal arts college
2: yeah, it's definitely different than, than anything I had experienced before. I mean, this is my first job out of grad school that I, I taught as a grad student and you know I I, I attended three different places to, to get degrees and Sweet.
1: Oh, um, we'll certainly, talk about that. that. sounds like a Yeah. Fun
2: but there's a before. I mean there's certainly yeah. a higher level of interest at an HBCU, I think in Africa. And and a lot of that is for heritage reasons. You know, students are interested in where their ancestors came from, what they experienced. Um you know, if I'm teaching an African politics class, my students are always super interested in Um, the, the part where we talk about pre-colonial governing institutions in Africa, you know, we talk about the kingdoms and the, the sort of great West African kingdoms, the Songhai, um, what the, the things that exist in like present day Mali, Ghana. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that, you know, for a lot of students, that's sort of a point of, of pride to learn about that because the, you know, uh, the, Kind of historical narrative the Victorians created was that Africa was the dark continent full of savages who were just waiting to be civilized. And for my students, you know, to learn about, um, the very extensive and well developed civilizations that, that were on the continent, um, prior to that and prior even to their, you know, ancestors. I mean, most of my, my students, their ancestors were taken into slavery at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there tends to be a high interest. And the other thing that's nice is that, Um, Because of this interest and because of of heritage reasons, there's an Africanist in almost every department, which is pretty rare to find at a liberal arts college with, with, you know, 2,500 students. Um, You usually wouldn't have an Africanist teaching art and an Africanist teaching literature and an Africanist teaching history and politics and on and on. But um, in our environment, we we do, and that that has been a lot of fun.
1: And I imagine so you're going to go from that environment to one at at Colby where you're going to probably be like the Africanist, I would imagine.
2: Um, well, yeah, there's there's actually a really um, distinguished historian of of Africa um, at Colby, so I'm, I'm pretty okay. excited about that. But it definitely is more kind of the traditional, where you'll have you know two or three people. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be an affiliate in African and African American studies at Colby, so it's it's one unit instead of two, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I mean, I think it's it's exciting and it's it's a lot of fun to talk about the the connections there. But um, yeah, it's definitely going to be a different environment and a different. Um, different approach to thinking about Africa, for sure.
1: So, I mean, I follow Africa just by virtue of the fact that I I sort of follow the UN and like, you know, 75% of everything the UN does is... You know, in Africa, you know people—right, right—people I think don't don't realize that because it's like the Syria's, the Iran's that gets most of the attention. But actually, like on the ground mm-hmm. stuff that the UN does is mostly in Africa. So you know, I follow it, but I, I really don't know very much about like sort of the academic world of Africa studies. And for some reason, in my mind, I have this sort of picture of like there being this like baby boomer leftist anti-colonial old guard who, uh, like, you know, maybe dominates the the field. Is that sort of antiquated? Is that true? What is, Um, I guess, what is, I mean, what are your sort of general Africa studies academic people like?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's changed a lot. So, so it's interesting because most people, you know, most people don't get a degree. Their their PhD is not in African studies. Their PhD is in a traditional discipline and they specialize as an Africanist. Um, and there are a few places you can get a PhD in, in kind of the area studies stuff, but you wouldn't, you're going to have a very difficult time finding a job Mm -hmm. Um, with that is, is generally the advice we give people. Um, So I think, yeah, I think that that is a little bit of an antiquated stereotype. I mean, definitely that crowd is still around, but they've had a pretty hard time attracting younger, um, younger scholars to, to that issue. I mean, the younger scholars, we tend to be pretty heavily trained in the, in the methods of our disciplines. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, And if you want to get the kind of African studies training, you, you have to, to do other things. Um, So for example, I got an, an MA in African studies um, and that's where I learned how to do ethnographies and how to, um, you know, think about culture as as an explanatory factor and, and those sorts of things. And that, that you don't get in a political science PhD program. Um, But what I got in a political science PhD program, conversely, you know, training, learning, knowing how to read a regression table, um, knowing how to think about hypothesis testing and all that. I didn't get in African studies. I mean, it's, it's, there's some trade offs there, but you kind of have to go out of your way. And I think that the, the, kind of my generation of Africa scholars, it's not that we're not, um, Concerned about about social justice and those kinds of issues. It's just that um, a lot of us are, I think, more kind of pragmatically oriented rather than ideologically mm-hmm. oriented. Mm-hmm. Um was so like a
1: generational in... thing too. Would yeah. You imagine? yeah, I mean,
2: back in the day, everybody was a Marxist. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's how it was. And now, you know, most of us are just mostly interested in in evidence based data. <laughs> you know, what what does the evidence tell us about what kinds of interventions work in development, and what does the evidence tell us about what What people in Africa think Mm -hmm. um, about about a particular issue, or what their priorities for their community are—that kind of Um, Mm -hmm. thing—we're really not kind of pushing an agenda. And I think that you know part of that comes out of—I mean, we are not in the middle of the Cold War; Um, we're not in this kind of grand ideological struggle in which Africa is being used as a battlefield anymore. Um, And it's you know apartheid Mm -hmm. Uh, South Africa for all the problems it has—you know, there's no kind of issue with a lot of people that's what radicalized a lot of people back in the day was was opposition to the apartheid regime and you know our generation hasn't really had anything like that in africa this just sort of absolute and clear moral evil with a clearly defined alternative and that's
1: interesting so Um, that that totally sort of you know or or very heavily colors colors the outlook i wanted to ask you so uh you you know are from texas i would surmise by the texas and africa Handle. I am. So, uh, where are you from in Texas? And I guess you know how in the world did you get into uh, Africa studies?
2: That's a great question. My mother asks herself that every day. Um, so, I'm from originally from a small town um, yeah. in West Texas. I'll just—it's near Lubbock. <laughs> it's near the best Lubbock. way to explain okay. it, um, which is the big city out there of about two hundred thousand yeah. people. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's—it's it's So a what common- happened. I'm from a cotton farming community. Yeah. Um, it's, family, it's really nothing. Were your
1: parents uh, farmers? Uh,
2: no, my grand my grandfather was a farmer. My dad is actually um, an ordained Southern Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, when I was partway through elementary school, he took a job at the um, at the Southern Baptist Convention's publishing house in Nashville, mm-hmm. um, and so we moved to Tennessee. So, a lot of my you know we we kind of I was raised by by people who would say, well, you know, when people ask where you're from, they'd say, well, we live in Tennessee, but we're from Texas. (laughs) Um, And then I went back to Texas for college and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, what happened? um, My parents sent me to Baylor to get a good Baptist University education. And I came home at the end of the first year and said, I want to go study abroad in Kenya.
1: He so how, I mean, um, what happened? There must have been. I mean, did yeah. You I mean, want to I had Kenya. You know, what? What? what something yeah, I was the
2: only freshman, freshman on the. On, so I, was, I did model UN, um, like right many on. of our, our international relations nerd yeah. community. Um, and I was the only freshman on the team at Baylor. And as the only freshman, I got last pick of every single topic. And my freshman year, they all had to do with Africa. <laughs> um, nobody wanted to. Nobody <laughs> wanted to work on Africa, and. Um, I just – spring of 97, um, I had an assignment to write about um, and study uh, refugee flows in Central Africa. And so that's when um, the – Luan Kabila's forces had invaded Congo um, with backing from the Rwandans um, and were sweeping across the country. And and you'll remember that the uh, Rwandan army was kind of chasing down um, a group of Hutu refugees and slaughtering them at various points. And so I was reading, you know, Howard French's dispatches in the New York Times and Laurie Garrett in the Christian Science Monitor, and um, it was just absolutely – I mean, I couldn't write the paper because you would have like 40,000 people move, uh, you know, Within a week, they'd move a hundred miles, and you couldn't nail down who was where and what was. going Nobody knew what was going on. I mean, it was it was pretty clear that terrible, terrible things were happening, but um, it was it was a very chaotic period, and I just was fascinated by it. I thought, you know, this is something that is really, really interesting. It's um, the the problems seem almost intractable. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to know more, and so then I got the opportunity to go study in Kenya um, for so, a term. So I mean, Kenya was like
1: as close as the DR Congo and Rwanda as you can get, sort of thing. Oh yeah, no, you couldn't yeah. have
2: studied abroad in the yeah. DR Congo
1: yeah. then. So Bale, um, Bale yeah, I know like that. That was
2: yeah, yeah, but actually, it was actually it was more just my university. Um, okay. There was a professor, the director of the African Studies program, um, wanted to do a. He wanted to pilot a semester-long program um, in East Africa, and so I, you know, it took it took on. Just a year, but I talked to my parents, and it was one of the ways I talked them into it is it was cheaper to go than to spend a year at Baylor. Yeah. Um, but the they cost finally.
1: Of is probably a bit, a bit cheaper than in. Uh, yeah, in yeah. States.
2: But, you know, that was a pretty incredible time. I mean, we were based in Kenya. We did some stuff in Tanzania, too, but it was still um, under the Moy dictatorship yeah. um, back then. This was in 98. Um, it was right when the U.S. Embassy was bombed by Al Qaeda. Yeah.
1: Um, Were you there? Were you in? No,
2: I I, I was at my parents' house and my mom woke me up and (laughs) said, you know, the two countries you're going to have just been bombed and the president's about to make a speech. You need to wake up. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was about three, I think three or four weeks before we left um, that all that happened. But the U.S. Embassy was very they moved really quickly because there were several study abroad programs and encouraged us to go ahead and come. And I, you know. I'm forever grateful
1: that that, that
2: happened, and so didn't, yeah. I'm, and, trying to, I'm, really-
1: I'm trying to think like, didn't sort of Clinton respond by cruise missile like a like a factory in Sudan?
2: Yeah, so that was the night we were flying back to Europe. Um, Yeah, we actually were having to fly around Sudanese airspace, so the flight was taking a lot longer. It was like, I think it was a Nairobi to Amsterdam flight. And we get to Amsterdam the next morning, and there's all these pictures, and we can't read Dutch um, in the newspapers. But but it's like, wow, somebody bombed. We bombed Baghdad last night. Um, Good thing we weren't over Sudan when that happened, you know, but – Wow. Um I mean it was a fascinating time. That's the first time I'd ever been anywhere where people were not free to talk about politics yeah um where you you know we talked with the doctor who consulted for Amnesty International on torture victims um that kind of thing and she, you know she's telling us about the things that she had seen telling us about her husband who's a parliamentarian and when when a controversial vote was coming up he was he would their house would be surrounded by soldiers so that he couldn't go vote mm-hmm. um and just seeing, you know, the the changes from that time. I mean, I think that that really affected my thinking, both as a scholar and a person. I we lived in a village um, for a while, so lived with a family in a village. Had in, to in Kenya,
1: know, or in Tanzania. Yeah,
2: in Western Kenya. Okay. Um, which I think was the the best possible, you know, it was, on on the one hand, it was a little ridiculous. I mean, it was kind of, you know, students out in the woods, but we weren't pretending that we were there to help anybody. I mean, okay. it was, it was definitely a learning experience. And what, you like
1: interviewing, you're trying to do some research? No,
2: just living day-to-day just living. life with, with a family. Um, so getting water, you know, walking to the women's yeah. group meeting and um, going to, that was the first time I ever attended a Catholic mass was with this uh-huh. family because they were Catholic. How did your and dad, did dad just, feel about that? Uh, oh, you know, he got over it, but it was in Marimbe, so I didn't understand a, a okay, word of it, yeah. and uh, or not Marimbe, Marimbe's Hello, it was in Kisi. Uh, no, blah, blah, blah. I'm messing up. I was in local language, right? And okay. so I'm sitting next to this nun, and she's glaring at me through the whole thing because I didn't know what to do in the first place, and I definitely didn't know what to do in the language,
0: you
2: know. Yeah. <laughs> I was kneeling at the wrong times, and um, but it was great. I mean, in that, you know, I think that was.
1: So this is the right was, thing
2: at the right time. I'm,
1: I'm trying to like uh, remember my Kenyan history. This is, you know, tour what uh, Moy was out of power in the early 2000s, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And so so this There had just been an election. Right yeah.
2: yeah there, so there's the elections at that time always took place over the Christmas holidays. Yeah. Um, that was a way of rigging of rigging the vote and because that happened in you had to. 2007,
1: 2008 as well. That was that was in a Christmas. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So that was that massive. was how it always happened back then, okay. and they would do that because the city dwellers, who were the most likely to to vote as opposition yeah. for opposition candidates, um, had to go home, and so they all, you know, they they go home for the holidays, and you had to register where you lived, and so they lived in the city, so they couldn't vote. Uh, um, so clever. yeah, there had been. There had been a vote, probably about yeah, we got there in september ninety eight so that that passed like december the last mm-hmm. week of december that that the year before, um but there had been violence, there had been um situations in the rift valley um tensions over land rights, those kind of things, okay. um and also down by the coast um there had i mean the same things that we see today in the same places, the same stuff that happened in in um, or seven Oh eight. Yeah. Um, you know, those are, those are longstanding issues. And Moy, the the president of the time was a master at manipulating them. And, you know, there's, there's pretty solid evidence. He was arming people. He was engaged in all kinds of shenanigans, um, all designed around the theme of staying in power. Mm-hmm. Um, so no concern for, for the people
1: or there was is he, is he um, still so around? He, did he die? You know, to, no, he's, he's still, still alive. Yeah, he, that's what I thought. He's
2: in retirement. Yeah, he's still around, but he seems to have mostly stayed out of things.
1: He's kinda of living in a um, villa somewhere.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly where. he's probably out yeah. in eldoret or or maybe in Nairobi. Eldorette's a little okay. uncomfortable if you're used to his uh yeah. His lifestyle. But you know, I didn't get to go back to Kenya until two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Um and the, the change in that period of time was just astonishing. Yeah. Um you know, just the, the level of development, the roads there's traffic is still horrible in Nairobi but it, the, the roads are paved and there are traffic yeah. lights and there are laws about how many people could sit on a bus at that point you know i mean it was it was these kind of just incredible little changes and people felt so free to speak their minds have you um,
1: been back recently
2: I haven't last time I was there was oh seven I think mm-hmm. um so it's been a while the, but, um, um, so but what I think you, certain...
1: yeah what, what what what's your take on uh the the Kenyatta situation I mean this is uh you know it sort of dominated you know it's funny it dominates news for a while and then sort of no one's yeah
0: talking about and sort about of it it
1: disappears but the, but his trial the iCC is set to commence uh in just a few months actually no, right. probably like, probably like six weeks from now or something like that
2: Right. and I think I was just reading today he's gonna be in in London um yeah. pretty soon for okay. for some kind of for the talks on somalia's future
0: yeah um his defense. so
2: he is going to be going to be able to travel out there and the, and those kinds of things I mean, I think it's really interesting, you know it does seem to be the case that a majority of Kenyan voters voted for him yeah um i you know was there electoral fraud, yes, but there's always electoral fraud in the United States too right, right. i mean these, these things happen in any democracy um but it seems to be that unlike the last time around. Um, there's pretty solid evidence that these elections, yeah. at least in some sense, b- represented the will of the people. Um, now, is that particularly encouraging that that's the will of the people? I mean, I saw, you know, some of my Kenyan friends on Twitter talking about basically we our choices between criminals or how criminal yeah. we want our leaders to be, um, and I think that, you know, what happens at the ICC is obviously going to have a huge effect, mm-hmm. um, not only on Kenya but also on on thinking about how we prosecute crimes against humanity, See. whether people can be held accountable for um, electoral manipulation that gets out of hand, and I mean you you do well, have that's to.
1: That's not what he's you know, being charged. I mean he's being charged with, right. with orchestrating you know the violent like you know having right. But I mean
2: but, but that that violence was. It was an attempt at electoral right, manipulation right, right. in a way. That's that's yeah. what I'm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess. My, I mean, and, yeah. and you have to. You know, people are are supposedly innocent before proven guilty. Well, I mean, it is, I, mean I think it's my, really important.
1: That's my take. I mean, people are writing about how this totally complicates the international community's relationship with Kenya. How I, I don't know if you yeah. saw like, Johnny Carson, the the Assistant Secretary of for uh-huh. African Affairs you know said that this would you know sort of in, you know insinuated that this would be like a less than desirable outcome but you know just as you said you know he is a defendant in a court of law he is you know, behaving so far responsibly and he's living up yeah. to his responsibilities as a defendant. He's, you know, innocent until proven guilty and he seems so far willing to cooperate with a court. And this is like kind of how, you know, idealists like me kind of want to see this thing happen. We want to see yeah. even people yeah, and in I think positions of power, yeah. you know, submitting themselves to the rule of law. So it's far a huge kind mean, of progress and yeah. I, the
2: conduct of the elections themselves even though there were there were things that were not satisfactory it, it they were a huge success yeah. i mean the fact that there was no violence the fact that um you know odinga eventually said okay i don't accept the results but i'm not going to take to the streets I'm yeah. going to go to court, and <laughs> I'm going to challenge them. I mean, those are major signs of progress for for the rule of law, yeah. and for just kind of general respect for human rights. And I, I don't guess think that, maybe, that,
1: yeah, maybe the big challenge will be, you know, assuming Kenyatta continues his cooperation in the court. If he's ever found guilty, and these things can drag out for a long time, and he's sort of right. sentenced, is there a constitutional crisis in Kenya? You know, if he and also his running mate Rutu are are sort of both up for, uh, you know, are both on trial. So if they're both convicted and sentenced and shipped away to jail, that could, I imagine that would present a crisis, but so far things seem to be sort of, you know, moving, moving along.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, when I, when I lived in Kenya, Kenya had so many problems, but people were really really proud and and I definitely see this still among my Kenyan friends that that they had never had a civil war you know so there's there's sort of if you're if you're in Kenya if it's the 90s you are surrounded by just basket cases right in Somalia in Sudan Rwanda I mean that Uganda was still actively a, a war zone in the north at that point mm-hmm. um, and Kenyans were really really proud that that they had not succumbed to that, that yes, we have tribalism and we have all the issues that come with that, but we haven't had a war. We have managed to resolve our disputes. There has been low-level violence, but there's never been anything major. And so when, when the violence in 2007, 2008 happened, it was really shocking to a lot of Kenyans. They they didn't think that could happen there, and they, they don't think of themselves as the kind of people who, who have those situations. And I think what you saw come out this time was a strong expression of that, of, of people saying, this is not our country. This is not who we are. And we're not going to, to put up with this again. We're not going to allow this to happen
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, again. And, you know, it's, I mean, we'll see, but I think that commitment will carry through whatever happens at the ICC. I mean, I think you, you have very few people in Kenya. You have a, a small minority who want to pursue violence to make a point, but, but the vast majority of people don't want to lose what they've gained. I mean, the, the, the growth of the middle class in Kenya, the, the level of development that um, is slowly but steadily spreading.
1: So um, so we got a little um sidetracked. Yeah, sorry about <laughs> for, that. for the no <laughs> that's, that's what this is all about. Um so you so you were in Kenya. Now you came back, I assume, and, and started grad school right away.
2: Uh yeah, so I had another year of college after that. But yeah, um went to I did my so I was planning to be a foreign service officer. Um, and had taken the exam, but that was the pre-9-11 era when the wait times were long and the the process was very different than it is now. Um, So the suggestion was, you know, you might as well go to get a master's degree while you wait because if you get a master's, you'll get paid more.
0: So
2: so I had applied to MA programs um, and ended up doing an MA in African Studies at Yale. Um, And in the course of that adventure, um decided that I really wanted to be an academic. Um, yeah. that I really enjoyed research, I really enjoyed teaching and um just wanted to, to go I that route instead. I did, I did. <laughs> and um and it's 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 still not it hasn't undid, as it were, hasn't been cured. It's it's still I mean I'm really glad with the with the choice I made. I think the Foreign Service would have been a fascinating life and a fascinating career, but um well, this is a lot of fun
1: in general in international affairs and I'm not I don't know enough about uh the African Studies academic world to 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 know this but in general in international affairs there is this great divide between uh academia and policymakers and yeah. it's it's you know frankly academics have very little influence in foreign policy in general and yeah. policymakers and and you know the the sort of the think tank people generally don't look to universities for sources of inspiration and light. They're sort of very siloed, and I'm wondering if, if yeah. that's, is that the kind of the case in, in Africa studies as well, or is there a little um, more overlap? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it, I think it can be. I mean, one thing that's that's important to remember is how marginalized Africa is in the first place in in think tank land yeah. and in I know, in I, land. That, that,
1: I, know I, I totally forget that all the time because I write about this stuff and I forget yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, frankly, you know, not that many people are into, Brookings yeah. has
2: only had a, a really solid Africa yeah. program for a <laughs> couple for of years. Me. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it's and and you know, CFR has what like they have like one full-time Africanist, and then Jim yeah. Di Frazier sort of does stuff for them on the side. I mean, it, yeah. it's not a high priority yeah. um, in that world, yeah. but, um, you know, as AFRICOM is expanding, as oil interests, as the piracy issue um, have blown up, um, and there's there's more interest than there used to be from policymakers. I mean if you go to the African Studies Associating Me- Association meetings which are held every November um, more and more policy types are there every year. This year you know I met all kinds of people from the State Department um, the military guys started showing up and you know sort of trying to be discreet, but they're in the crew cut and polo shirt. So we all know who they are. They're going to, they're going to all the Somalia panels. Um, well, you know what's, I what's mean,
1: you,
0: yeah,
2: you know, I guess I think,
1: what I see is as, you know, U.S. foreign policy, I mean, is, is frankly, you know, it's dominated by the military. The military is like right. half our budget. And as soon as, you know, you're saying that Africa is so hot right now, oh. and I think it's getting uh-huh. hot because the military is starting to get into it. Now, I'm wondering if you think if that will distort U.S. policy at all in ways that maybe, <laughs> you know, it, it shouldn't be. I mean, I'm thinking of things like Mali. You know, no one really cared about yeah. Mali. You know, it, it was a slow burn humanitarian crisis for, you know, almost mm-hmm. like two years before, you know, the French and, and the, you know, the, the, you know, became sort of a counterterrorism priority.
2: Right. I mean, yeah, it, it could. I don't know. I mean, it, it's. You, you have to go back to the problem that that Africa policy across administrations, Republican and Democratic, is usually kind of a disaster. Um, or if not a disaster, it's just kind of the. I mean, I call it the bastard stepchild of U.S. foreign policy. It's really, you know, the, there there are very smart people. The desk officers at State Department, the desk officers and analysts at, at Defense. Um, Know their stuff, and they really do look to the academic community just for sheer accumulation of knowledge and and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, Congress <laughs> um, right. tends to rely more heavily on um, advocacy groups
0: yeah.
2: um, for their information. You know, the the foreign affairs committees basically have one Africanist a piece for each side of the aisle. Yeah. Um so that's four four professional staff for the entire um Congress um who, you know, th- there's no way that they can know they, yeah. they can be experts on everything that comes across their path. It's just physically impossible for one person to do that. Um so I think, you know, you you do kind of see this weird amalgamation of interest and who screams the loudest and manages to get attention. Um who brings the celebrities? I mean, that's what's really bizarre to me about about Africa. Is I don't think there's any other region in the world where you so frequently see like actors and singers going to testify before Congress right. about foreign policy issues. Um, it's it's really bizarre if you if you think about. it. I mean, could you imagine an Israel hearing um, with Madonna or something like that? I mean, it's it's just. I was really, waiting. Really I was I was totally
1: waiting for you to get into this because, following you as I do, I know that you have a contentious relationship with the activist community. Which is something that, <laughs> which is something that yeah. I, I I really wanted to uh, explore. Um, they really hate me. It's, yeah. It's really too well, bad. you know, you, you, um, you give it out too. You don't. You know, you, you, yeah. you, you have sharp elbows. Um, so it's here, true. let's let's take here let's let's maybe take the Coney twenty twelve example because that's okay. probably the thing that most people are, are familiar yeah,
0: with. Yeah, sure. And, sure.
1: I'm, and and you know, I think as you know, I'm a little more squishy than you are. I'm like a little less um, hardcore anti uh, activism, but. Let's, okay, let's, let's
2: I'm, not, I'm not anti-activism. I want to be clear on that. Okay. Um,
1: You're anti, like, the Coney 2012, the enough? I am
2: anti-activism that is not driven by local actors.
1: Okay. Um,
2: so I was in an event that Alex DeWall hosted at, at Tufts yeah. um, a, a couple months ago, um, and he kind of started off trying to provoke discussion, as as Alex DeWall does. Um, but, but his point was that, you know, act, the traditional definition of activism is, when you stand in solidarity with local actors on an agenda that they have already determined. Um, and I think that what we see with kind of the the, the advocacy community in D.C. Um, focused on Africa issues, whether it's the Coney 2012 stuff or Conflict Minerals or Save Darfur, um, is agendas that are primarily developed in Washington. And then there is an effort made to reach out to, to leaders in the communities and to get them on board with something that's already been laid out. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe that agenda includes local interests and priorities. Maybe it doesn't. Um,
1: so, so let's, let's maybe break this down with the the 2012. So the video came out and, you know, I saw it and I, you know, I was like, wow, what a kind of stupid video. But in the back of my mind, I thought, well, you know, this can do some good. You know, like, co- you know, the first article I ever wrote for the American Prospect in 2005 was about Coney wow. and the LRA and about yeah. how the, uh, at the time, the Bush administration was like hardcore against the International Criminal Court, yet at the same time, Coney was a State Department sponsored terrorist. So I write about, you know, how that policy was silly. we got to, you know, mm-hmm. start focusing on Coney. You know, obviously no one paid attention to it and no one, you know, could really. You know, uh-huh. care less about the LRA or Joseph Kony, But then this video comes along and all of a sudden people are sort of starting to talk about it. And I'm like, wow, this is like, people are actually going to pay attention to the next time I write like a post about uh, Joseph Kony. And yeah. I was like, okay, so maybe this maybe this can do some good despite sort of how kind of terrible this video is. And I, so, I then I talked to my friend in Northern Uganda who's actually like an LRA survivor and runs an NGO wow. down there. And he... Uh, and I asked him, you know, what he thought about it and if he had heard of it, he's like, Yeah, you know, of course we have. Um, this is kind of crazy. It does not take in our interest into account whatsoever. And he's the guy, his name is Victor Ochin, really smart guy, really uh-huh. great yeah, guy, yeah. activist. You, yeah, I you probably know is. him. And he so he, he's the one who organized the the, the screening.
2: Oh, where, where, that, led to the, uh... that led to
1: like the riots.
2: Yeah, the vegetables being thrown at the screen. Exactly.
1: Yeah, because obviously this is so completely removed from their experience. And the good that he would want it to do is have like a more deeper and focused attention on sort of the victims, which are his community that he's working with. And, you know, the good that I wanted it to do, um, you know, was was removed from that. It was I wanted it to, you know, make U.S. policy a little less hostile to international human rights and and the ICC in general. Which I think, to, like by my judgment, you know, that actually happened just a few months ago. The Rewards for Justice program, which is a U.S.
0: Uh-huh. Um, yeah.
1: State Department program that rewards people for giving information on war criminals and terrorists and stuff like that, included, right. you know, information that will lead to Kony and other people's arrest for the ICC. So it was like the right. first time that uh, since 2002 that the U.S. sort of actively promoted the ICC in a very sort of concrete way or the U.S. Congress right. did. So that kind of moved policy a little bit in the ways that I was looking to do it. But as Victor pointed out, as, as I'm sure you'll point out, it was, you know, to the detriment largely of, of the actual victims of this conflict.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, I think that goes to the goes to the point of it, right? So, so your view on it is, you know, I am helping something, the cause of justice or protection of innocence, by writing a blog post about this and that more people will read it because this film brought attention to the crisis. Is a good thing, um, whereas you know if you're on the ground, who cares if you wrote a blog post, right? And who cares if if there's attention brought for its own sake? Um, I mean, I don't think many. But it did move know,
1: policy, right? It did move that you know maybe a minuscule movement of policy. Yeah, but, but I know.
2: mean, I mean, but what good is it doing, right? And that that's to be determined, right? I mean, it's. You know, if you – what I've been worried about with Rewards for Justice is that it's going to create kind of this accidentally created de facto bounty program, um, which the folks at, at the State War Crimes Office insist that it is not a bounty program. But, I mean, it's, it's you know, rewards for information leading to the capture alive of of Joseph Clinton. And um, – there are a lot of crazy people out there is what i'll say about that and i could you know just right. kind of see people going out and hunting them but the other thing is i mean we have u.s special forces um who until recently due to the the um rebel takeover in the car have been helping ugandans to hunt for him for for a year and a half now um and they have not had success and it seems that um coin has has moved into sudan perhaps um but that you know at the end of the day it's not making a difference for these people um now the advocacy crowd will argue with me that that the attention that came from the from 20 2012 um has led to increased activity which has led to more, um, LRA fighters turning themselves in, um, particularly in Congo. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a place where it's really hard to establish a causal relationship, um, it may be that it may also be the efforts to message, um, to, you know, they, they do these kind of like radio messaging, um, outreach to, to, to ask rebels to, to turn themselves in, to tell them how to do it, what the procedures are. Mm -hmm. That stuff was already happening before the video came out, um, as a result of the advocacy campaigns. And because these, these groups have been involved in these activities for years and, you know, when they do survey kind of the, um, fighters who turn themselves in about why they turn themselves in. And that's one of the things that it's something ridiculous. It's like 75 or 85%. I mean, it's a huge number of them, um, mentioned that, that messaging as, as being a key thing that, that helped them to make the decision that they, they could
1: walk away. Yeah. Well, there was, a, um, there there was, was an would. amnesty at one point, wasn't there? Or was that, uh, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, there was, yeah, there was an attempt at it. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say what causes that. And and certainly the efforts that are underway in Central Africa, the deployment of, of the forces, had nothing to do with the film um, at it all. Just,
1: the timing it was, was already underway. Yeah. So people – yeah. I, th- I feel like just people noticed because of it.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, they tried to trump it up in the first in, – in the 20-2012, right, by saying there's a risk that they might leave, they might be pulled out. I mean, I I found that claim really dubious. Um, there was nobody – None of my contacts, nobody, you know, there was nothing out there that was saying they're they're going to leave. It's it's a yeah. hundred special forces in the jungle. It is it is not a huge commitment of of U.S. time and resources, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this situation. I mean, I, I think that was a f- kind of trying to trump up a reason for action when there when there wasn't necessarily a need for one. And that that so, I don't know. I mean, that but the fact that they can't even pronounce the guy's name right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Is, is to me a major sign that <laughs> well, you probably you know, shouldn't I, be I don't money. Give,
1: I don't give that much credence interest because, you know, it, it's its an English thing. It's, you know, you're you're trying to appeal to the masses. You're, you're not going to say it's coin when it's coney. I'm yeah. Not, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think maybe this is maybe a key distinction between academics and advocates and that, you know, yeah. advocates necessarily want to simplify things as much as possible, whereas academics search for the nuance, you know, in, in a pursuit of, yeah. of, of truth. well,
2: I know, and advocates have to simplify things. I mean, and I think yeah. that's that's something that, you know, it, it's, it's a real challenge for people in the advocacy community. You cannot fit the the causes, the reasons that the LRA exists onto a bumper sticker. Um, you cannot explain their grievances. I mean, Joseph Klein is not just a crazy nut job out there killing people for kicks. He has a very specific agenda. It is related to the idea of the purification of Acholi land and this sort of return to being, like, true Acholi mm-hmm. um, culturally with, with him as the leader. Um, I mean that's that's very foreign to most Westerners, but it's not just kind of this irrational madman
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, narrative that stuff like this perpetuates. And I think that when you when you oversimplify the narrative to, to fit it on a bumper sticker and to get attention, you run the risk of proposing solutions that number one may not work, and number two may actually do active harm.
1: So. Um, one of the places I think where where you've exposed this pretty deeply is DR Congo and, and conflict minerals. Yeah, but yeah. you know, am I no? I, I don't want to sort of skip the sort of the life narrative of of Laura right now. Um, so, you, you, I, I, can I assume that your PhD was something focused focused on DR Congo because that at least yeah. seems to be like your specialty? Um,
2: yeah. So, so yeah, my my dissertation um, was about um, is like well, it's. A, It's a book manuscript now, but it's about um, social service provision by non-state actors um, in eastern Congo and what that does to authority structures
1: over time. Mm -hmm. And what did you find? Can you boil it down?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, basically, you know, you have, I think it's a
1: dangerous thing to ask a PhD <laughs> what... Yeah, yeah, so I
2: won't go into all of the right, metrics right. Of, of why, yeah. so I look at why some groups are better, are like better able to provide okay. services than others. Mm-hmm. But basically, services in Congo are provided almost entirely by religious actors who have contracted with the state to take over the state's functions. So you will have like the Catholic church running public schools um, that are Catholic public schools. There will also be Baptist public schools and Pentecostal public schools. Um, And what this does over time, it creates um, alternative authority structures Mm -hmm. um, where people don't trust the state to do anything because they have no reason to trust the state. And instead they look to these alternative authority structures. Um, And, you know, the, The solution for every problem in Congo is that the state has to be stronger and the state has to be capable of doing the things that states do, um, like protecting borders, like providing services and what are called public goods. And that in Congo, what you have is, is a deeply entrenched um, really over a century old system, I mean, this goes back to the colonial period, um, of non-state sources of authority having a lot more power and capacity than the state. And so um, the ultimate conclusion is that it's it's pretty pessimistic yeah. view of the potential for state state building. That's well, and,
1: yeah, I mean, that's sort of like one of the key sort of secure dilemmas of, of the developing world. Is that, you know, the state is so weak and too weak to provide right. services and security. And what is this
2: of it is, is predatory, yeah. right? As Severino Tessera has pointed out. I mean, is it even valuable to talk about rebuilding a state that
1: that
2: just preys on its people. Yeah. Um,
1: and and so, you know, actually, I, I wanted to get into DR Congo a little bit now because um, things are kind of like happening right now.
2: Yeah, um, it's crazy. And it's,
1: yeah, it's, it's kind of nuts. Um, so I guess as we speak, South Africa has or is preparing to deploy like a more aggressive peacekeeping force to, uh, to try to push back this latest rebel movement, the M23 or m mm-hmm. is it M23 or M23? M23, their
2: name for
1: the 20- like 23rd of March, two
2: thousand nine. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so M23 sounds like more like a machine gun or something like that, <laughs> but M23. So yeah. So what's, um, so I, yeah, what's, what's your take on this latest, this latest move, which seems, you know, it's kind of like a, one of the biggest things to happen, at least internationally on DR Congo in a long time.
2: Yeah, I mean it's also one of the biggest things ever to happen in peacekeeping in general, right? right the the right. UN has never deployed a, a search and kill force before. <laughs> um or at least they haven't, you know, openly stated that they have done so. Um I think it's really significant. Um on a lot of levels. Now, it should be specified that the purpose of the intervention brigade is not just specifically to go after the M twenty three; it's to go after any non state armed group mm-hmm. um, in Congo. And so, which of which there are, you know, given what whatever day it is, give or take thirty or forty, yeah. um, they're constantly sort of splitting and getting into petty little fights and, and those kinds of things. Um, so. The 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 widespread assumption is that M twenty three will be one of their main targets. Um I don't know if it will be their first target. If if I were going to place a bet on this, I would bet that they would go after the FDLR first.
1: Huh. And this um, you know, but, I don't think we need to unpack this too much so we could take forever explaining yeah. But that's basically the remnants of the Hutu uh Rwanda it's, Yeah. Election, now, but like they're children probably are- by now.
2: Yeah, most yeah. of them are too young to yeah. participate in the Rwanda genocide or yeah. they weren't born. But yeah. um yeah, it's kind of led it's led by those people and very yeah. much driven by a sort of nasty racist who to power ideology. Um they have a Twitter they have a podcast now. Nice. Um so if you if you really want to hear some appalling stuff and you speak Kenya Rwanda, um
1: there you go. It's it's
2: out there. <laughs>
1: dispatches on iTunes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I, I for some reason they don't seem to be welcome on iTunes. Okay. But um <laughs> yeah, so so I mean there are all these different groups. There's the Raya, there's the the various My yeah. My Militias. Um M twenty three though has been the most vocal in their um opposition to this this brigade and it's because they are clearly terrified that they are going to be a target of it. Um so this is this is controversial. Um a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the idea of the UN um even more overtly than it already has, taking sides
0: yeah.
2: in a conflict and um basically going out to kill or capture and I think that, you know, killing is is probably more likely in most of these these circumstances, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Um but the the counter argument that I have made on this is look, we have tried Everything else in DRC, um, you know the the rebels that you are dealing with are not good faith negotiators. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not people who are going to sit down and come up with a with a long term peace agreement. Yeah. Um, they are. They have been living in the forest. If you're talking about the FDLR, I mean these people have been living in the forest for 19 years, um, and are. Very, you know, pretty skilled fighters. Um, although certainly not as skilled as the forces that will be coming out against them, and not nearly as well equipped um, as the forces that will be coming against them. We have tried to get them to turn themselves in. We have tried paying them to turn themselves in. We have tried paying people to demobilize. We have tried integrating forces into the national army, um, and all of these efforts have been a disaster. It, and
1: from given a, that, from, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead.
2: No, yeah, I mean, given the level of human suffering that continues is this is this not worth trying and if, so I mean, from the
1: u n s perspective there's been you know it, the, the, the challenges of dr Congo. Are, you know, for UN peacekeeping, it's it's kind of twofold. It's one, it's, you know, the, there are more UN peacekeepers in DR Congo than any other peacekeeping mission, yeah. but it's still too few peacekeepers for too vast, oh, a,
2: grossly undersized. for too yeah. vast
1: uh, territory. So you get these horrific accounts of like mass rape or slaughtering a village and you're like, you know, where are the UN peacekeepers? Like, well, they're like 200 miles away is, is like the, clear, the, right. the nearest contingent. Um, the other, like, big challenge for UN peacekeeping there is that, you know, they've, as you said, they, they've uh, partnered with the government, with the with the uh, right. uh, Congolese very... army. And, uh-huh. you know, the, the Congolese army is not necessarily the most equipped, trained, and human rights-y, uh, you know, uh, military in the world. So sometimes the legitimacy of the UN peacekeepers are undermined by the fact that their partners in at this, you know, cause are, are committing human rights violations themselves. Right.
2: And, and at one point, I mean, for several years, the FARDC was actually the source of the most human rights violations, far more than, than the rest of the militias. And it gets down to that,
1: that point that you were saying earlier about sort of the need to strengthen state institutions as ultimately being what will solve this. Right. It's just so, so challenging when your partners are. And so,
2: you know, I mean, most, most Congolese scholars that I, I know think that, there is this really strong need to that, that one way you do that is that you have to, you have to route out the rebels Mm -hmm. in order to be able to professionalize the army. So the army can't do it on its own. If you can get rid of the rebel groups, that is that is one step toward sort establishing give, a security monopoly.
1: Yeah, give breathing um, space to let the army train, get the human rights training, that sort of thing, do the security sector reform.
2: Yeah, it's called. yeah and just kind of, you know, that th- they don't have to be rushing around putting out fires. I mean that's that's it's both with the peacekeepers and the national army. When when something so for example when the M twenty three, you know, was rising up about this time last year, um, the FARDC was sent. They were deployed to, to fight against them, but that left a security vacuum in the western parts of North Kivu in what's called mm-hmm. Wale Kale territory. Um, and that's where you saw the Raya Mutumbuki start committing gross human rights violations, um, terrorizing the, the population, created a huge IDP crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's because... It it was a security vacuum. So so, is it the M twenty? The M twenty three wasn't fighting in those areas, yeah. um, but their actions caused a, a whole series of events that that had really terrible consequences for and,
1: and, and for of civilians. course, there's there's like a regional aspect to this too. Because if you you know if you're to believe yeah. the UN report, which no, I have no reason to doubt, the M two three are really just sort of a proxy of the Rwandan government. And uh,
2: I think it's I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification. Um, so I don't think,
1: nuance Yeah. Away.
2: I don't. Th- I mean, I don't think that there's any reason to doubt the the UN group of experts report. There are a cadre of people who are dedicated to undermining their credibility. Right. Um, but all of those people have have ties to the Rwandan government in one way or another, and are using the same set of talking points. Um, but that said, I mean, they're they're not just a proxy force. The the interest of Congolese Tutsis, who are the the leaders of the M twenty three movement. Um, have often and do often diverge from Kigali's interest. Um, what we do know is that they were getting funding that apparently some of the forces were being commanded by the Rwandan defense minister. Um, but I think it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement to say that it was, it was a straight up proxy. Well,
1: in Rwanda though, in the process has sort of gotten this sort of pockmark on its face. I mean, U S policy yeah. to Rwanda has always been a little complicated, uh, yeah, and it's weird. It's so person. It seems, at least from from where I said that the U.S. policy to Rwanda is so personality driven. That mm-hmm. there's like you know, I, I I do think that the Clintons in particular do have like a close relationship with Kagame, and that yeah. that has colored U.S. policy. Um,
2: it definitely has. I influence. mean, it's, it's personal, and it's also very much driven by by guilt over not having intervened. Exactly, in the guilt
1: over that, and also, um, I mean, on the flip side, is Rwanda is in many respects, a development success story. I mean, it is a fast-charging, right. fast-growing economy. And and
2: it's also stable, yeah. which I think explains, you know, Susan Rice was, was on the Clinton team that, yeah. that failed to deal with the Rwandan genocide. And I, I don't think that all of Susan Rice's views on Rwanda and her views on Kagame are explained by, by genocide guilt. I mean, I think that ultimately, at the end of the day, for, for most people at the very highest levels of, of U.S. foreign policy, the ultimate concern in Africa is stability. And Kagame, for his authoritarianism, for his faults, has stabilized yeah. um, the country. And, yeah, it is. a civil, it's a yeah. Yeah. But it's also not a, du- a direct security basket case, right, <laughs> like mm-hmm. like so many um, countries in the neighborhood. And so for a very long time, U.S. policymakers were, were willing to look the other way. And it's not that they didn't know this was going on. You know, you could go talk to diplomats in Kigali and in Kinshasa. And they would tell you flat out, you know, we have no reason to believe that these minerals originated in Rwanda. We have no reason to believe that this, you know, this militia in Congo is getting its funds from from, from anywhere but Kigali. But they, the reports that they would make on that were not translated into policy. Um, and they were told to just kind of turn a blind eye to those things and um, that as long as it was stable, and they weren't sort of actively causing trouble, but what happened last year with m twenty three is that they kind of overstepped their bounds. I think that that Kigali thought it could get away with more than than it could than it you know with what it had done in the past. i mean it really wasn't that different from what they did with the the predecessor of the m twenty three a group called the c n d p um and even going back to the war with with the rebel movement called the r c d goma um and I think they were pretty shocked. When, um, when international actors started to withdraw aid, um, but the reason that international actors were withdrawing aid is because they saw what Rwanda was doing as a destabilizing force yeah
0: um,
2: it wasn't really over any particular concern with with Congo per se it was it was that you're destabilizing the region, you're making it more difficult to deliver aid, um, and so we want you to stop that. Um,
1: yeah. So, it seems to have worked. I mean. Yeah. No, no. It, 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 I, I think it did. So I, um, before we, we go on, I just wanted to ask you if you, do you have like a few more minutes to chat? There are yeah, a couple more subjects. Yeah, no problem. Over. I don't want to like monopolize your time in Maine. It's beautiful it's there. Great. It's lovely. Um, it is. It's it, it's like a little slice of heaven. I grew up in Connecticut and I uh, worked at a summer camp up in Maine, not too far from Waterville. Oh, nice. And it's, I love it up there. Oh, man. Yeah. Fresh yeah. air.
2: You can't beat it's it. Great. No traffic.
1: Yeah. Friendly people. It's lovely. Good ocean yeah. views. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> we digress. Uh, okay. So th- there are like three three things in my head that I want to talk to you about. Um, okay. I'm not in sure what order, but we're on Congo. So I you know I, I couldn't talk to you about Congo and not talking to you about conflict minerals. We touched on it sure. earlier. And you know, so we're talking about sort of uh, the-, the security basis of the problems in the Congo, but there's the economic basis as well, which a group like Enough will tell you is because governments, uh, because of the, the extractive industry and their conflict right. minerals there. And you, this is, I think one of your, um, you know, longstanding campaigns is to, I think, inject a dose of, um, you know, well, I'll let you describe it, but, but how you, uh, I've Back been fascinated. Well, fa- how I
2: would describe it, Mark. <laughs> okay.
1: So, so go, I mean, so it this seems to really, I mean, I, I follow you on Twitter and I follow your blog and nothing seems to. Uh, get at you more sort of intensely as uh, the, the the sort of advocacy campaign around conflict minerals.
2: It's true. Yeah. It drives me up, up the wall and I, it's, it's that would be a good study, psychological study and why. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's very much the what you've laid out. You know, there was this this strategy developed in, in 2008, 2009 yeah. um, that led to the passage of um, a rider on the Dodd-Frank legislation, Section 1502, yeah. um, which requires companies to um, report annually to the Securities Exchange Commission, companies listed with the SEC, um, whether they can verify that their products are free of – Um, four minerals from the Democratic Republic of Congo, so gold, tantalum, tungsten, and tin.
1: Yeah, Um, and this was like pretty much written by the the Enough campaign and those advocates.
2: Well, (laughs) who wrote it? Yeah, so it was – Well, it it was was championed. It was
1: championed by – The
2: the the language was very – was written in very close conjunction between um, congressional staffers and – um, yeah, and people in the advocacy community. And then some of those congressional staffers went to work for the advocacy group yeah. that had that had helped that after well, their, their it, member it lost re-election or retired. Kind of um, goes
1: back to what you were saying earlier about how, you know, you know, at least because Congress is very easily swayable on right. Africa issues, uh so advocacy the advocacy community has almost an outside outsized influence on oh, yeah. like, and this is something that, that Beck Hamilton aptly displayed and demonstrated in her book. That you know you can, um, you know that that there is the advocacy community has a you know has has great influence on Africa issues.
2: Right. In so Congress. yeah, so not, actually, not
1: necessarily not necessarily the executive branch, but but Congress for sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's this is so I'm writing a book on this, so I'm I'm oh, kind of process tracing how this great happens news. on on three on three. Uh, is three it like cases. is it an academic
1: book or is it going to be? Yeah,
2: yeah, but I, I hope to write it in a way that that'll be accessible for for the general out, public.
1: One hundred and forty characters at a time
2: yeah basically but but you know it's this so this is one of my case studies it's about u s policy in africa the others are the l r a stuff and um saved our for, um so the the kind of big post cold war um social movements that that resulted in congressional action one way or another through whether through legislation or yeah. or other activities but um yeah i mean you you know who would know about congo in congress um well um you know, you have um, Representative McDermott, who worked—I think he worked for USAID in in Kinshasa back in the in the Zaire years. Yeah, um, he was interested in it. So it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's his staff, and it's Russ Feingold's staff. Yeah, and, Feingold, and
1: um, who, very these are well, people who, who I don't know if you, this is sort of news, but he might be the next U.S. envoy to the Great Lakes region
2: that that's what I hear. Yeah. Um we'll see if on, that yeah. happens. We'll see what happens. And Don, um, no, late
1: Donald Payne too. He was he was a Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah Don Payne was de- was definitely involved. Um but the the McDermott and, and Feingold were the ones who, who inserted the legislation into into Dodd Frank. And you know, they're both people who um because of their party affiliation, because of their experience, are inclined to take the word of the Center for American Progress um, on a particular issue, which, of course, the NF Project is, is an affiliate of, um, or, or sort of a sub, I don't know exactly what the, the how you describe that relationship, but it's part, it's, it's part of, of CAP. And, um, you know, many members of the Congressional Black Caucus um, got very involved in this issue. Some of them went to visit GOMA. They went to the hospitals. And, you know, when you have... Advocates from a group that you trust telling you these little girls were raped because of these minerals in the phone, and we have a solution that won't cost the taxpayers anything, right, because the, the burden of the cost of this legislation is borne by businesses. Um, they have to verify or or show that they can, can not verify, um, and it's not going to cost anything, and it's a kind of, you know, who could possibly be opposed to helping five-year-old rape victims in Congo? Um, so it's a it's a moral victory. It lets you, you know, do what you think is good um, for basically for free, um, and it, it will address this problem. And it was very much sold as – this is a lever that will lead us to to peace in the congo um and I think that that position was more became more nuanced over time i mean there was there was finally kind of acknowledgment from the enough Project that look, this isn't a silver bullet um but they they really believed it was it, it's part of it and they still do that it's it's part of a toolbox um, so what we see from from evidence though is that rebels in the eastern congo um while some groups were heavily dependent on the mineral trade, others were not. I mean, a group like the FDLR was getting about 75% of its revenues, um, from the mineral trade before all this happened, but the CNDP, the predecessor of the M23, was only getting about 25% mm-hmm. of its revenues, um, through, through mineral trade. And that since this has gone into effect and there have been huge declines in the, in mineral exports from Eastern Congo. So they're, um, so because, it's
1: actually working, right? As, well, as, well, no. <laughs> We're working
2: it's it's in, a serious so – because it wasn't implemented until – I mean, the rules were – there was a dispute over the rules, and the SEC didn't know what it was doing um, because they'd never been handed a problem like this before. And so long story short, it took um, uh, over eight – almost – well, <clears throat> so the legislation required within nine months the SEC to release a rule on this, and long story short is that it took them um, over two years from the passage of the legislation um, to come up with a rule. They only released the rule last August, so we haven't even had one round of reporting yet, but you had some unintended consequences. Um, the Congolese administration under Kabila slapped a ban on mining for six months in in the region, so all mineral sales stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, then you had a major buyer of tin from the region, the Malaysia Smelting Corporation, which was buying about 90% of those minerals out of the Kivus. Um, they decided that they could not verify that that minerals coming out of that region were conflict free and so they just stopped purchasing them all together now i've been told that they are going to go back in but of course the conflict has has complicated all of this but the interesting thing is that what we're seeing is that you know rebel revenues from from the illicit mineral trade have gone way down um over the course of the past two years um not by the way that the, that 1502 designed them to go down, um, so not how it was it was intended to happen, but that effect is there. We can observe that effect. And instead of laying down their arms, what the, the vast majority of rebels in Eastern Congo have done is diversified their revenue streams.
1: Wait, so, so, um, you're, so, so it is like an undisputable uh, fact that rebel revenue decreased in sort of correlation with the uh, conflict mineral legislation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the advocacy crowd would would dispute that, but you know, would Kabila have slapped a ban on the on that and talked about, you know, the re, the relationship to Dodd Frank and the need to clean up the minerals? I don't think so. Would Malaysia Smelting Corporation have um, basically put a de facto boycott on Congolese minerals? That so I mean, th- that, that suggests do- that
1: <laughs> this is sort of, you know, is, that its intended effect is is being realized, right?
2: In a way, yeah. Not through again. Not through the mechanism they intended it to happen, but but the effect. And and what we've seen is that the um, the reduction in violence has not happened, and in fact, it's gotten worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, Congo is a far more violent and dangerous place today than it was in July of 2010 when when Dodd Frank passed, and the um, ICRC representative, last week, the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, you know, came out saying that. Congo right now is the the humanitarian conditions are as bad as they have been in fifteen years, um, yeah. which is quite a statement to make um that's going back to the period when you know you had um, IDP and refugee camps full of cholera outside Goma yeah. um, and people were dying by by the thousands um, so that's the, I,
1: the, yeah that's interesting i you know I, I I didn't actually realize that that the 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 conflict mineral legislation did in fact result in fewer rebel you know funds. Uh, coming from uh, coming from minerals, but you know, you're saying that it had zero correlation, or even maybe a negative correlation, with the sort of uh, you know scale of violence.
2: Yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to test. So, so this is the problem okay. we're talking about. Research in progress, right? Yeah. Is trying to test what what happened there and establish the, the causality and the, the reasons for that. Um, so, now, I'm not I'm not ready to make a, a community... definite pronouncement on it, but yeah. we definitely have not seen the. The reduction in violence that was promised when these things would happen. Now, what we have seen is is gold, which is problematic, which is another thing. Advocate, if you know, if if John Gas were sitting here and we were debating, he would argue with me. Well, well, the gold trade. So, so what did happen about maybe a year or so, or a year and a half after this is that a lot of miners moved to the the gold trade area. Mm-hmm. And some of the rebels, you know, were already benefiting from gold. Um, it's not clear from the UN Group of Experts reports, which is our best source of information on where the the rebels get their their revenue, um, because that's what their you know, their mandate is to report on those things. Um, but it it didn't seem that there was a huge change in sort of who was controlling the gold mine. Now gold is untraceable. It's lightweight. It's easy to smuggle. Um, nobody has figured out a good system for for um, having a clean supply chain with gold. And so a lot of the artisanal miners who were put out of work by Dodd-Frank 1502 because the sales stopped um, have moved their families or moved themselves to the gold mines to work there. Um, but you also have rebel groups that are – I mean, they are trading and taxing everything you can think of. So mm-hmm. um, controlling a border crossing is is a huge source of revenue. You can get about $300,000 a month um, by taxing, you know, trucks that are coming in and goods and people and requiring sort of special visas for the area that you control, um, the timber trade, the charcoal trade, mm-hmm. um, poaching and smuggling out live gorillas. Um, for, like, Middle Eastern princes and, and Chinese millionaires who want to have a pet gorilla, that has, has become a thing.
0: So the, uh, it, for some
2: of these rebel groups, the FDLR are involved in um, cannabis trade. Um, I mean, the, the point is that revenue streams can diversify.
1: Well, and I think it speaks, I think, the unintended consequences of, of advocacy. definitely, And that, that definitely. sort of brings me to something else I wanted to talk to you about, which is your sort of jihad against Tom's Shoes. And, uh, who is it really know, a
2: jihad? Is that really the, <laughs> it's a,
1: it's a struggle. It's a struggle. <laughs> okay. Um, and I wanted to, so, you know, I am unaware as my wife wears Tom's shoes. I, you know, I, I have no idea that they were uh-huh. such a, a nefarious influence in African affairs. Um, but, you know, has your, and you're part of like, you know, a campaign, a lot of sort of people who blog on Africa and development bloggers and Twitter people are sort of trying to convince the world that Tom's Shoes is a negative influence on sort of African uh, economies. Are you having yeah. any influence, do you think? Are you having any impact?
2: Any impact? Well, No, I mean not in not in the broader sense, right? But because people still think it's cool, and I still have students running around campus barefoot one day every spring. So this is. But I mean, with some individual students, like I did have one student who showed up for my first class a couple years ago in Tom's shoes, and now she's like (laughs) explaining to people why they're why they're harmful. I mean, I I do think that you know, kind of little differences, but but of course not. I mean, it's it's kind of you know, just call it Don Quixote or whatever, but. (laughs) it's (laughs) – the the issue is is economic development but it also i mean it's it's also about you know kind of externally driven determinations about what people need yeah. um I guess. And, and, you know, if you were to go to a village in Malawi and ask villagers what they, what they need to make their community better, um, shoes are probably not the answer that 99.9% of people would give you, you know, they're going to talk about the need for clean water sources. They're going to talk about the need for healthcare center, um, for improving conditions in the schools, having better trained teachers, um, the The priorities that people have in in poor communities in Africa and all over the world are not necessarily the priorities that outsiders think they mm-hmm. should have.
1: Like an extra pair of shoes for every Tom's you buy, they'll give one away to someone in Africa. Right. Yeah, and
2: I think that you know what that points to is that Tom's is ultimately it's it's a well intentioned program, but it's ultimately not about the beneficiaries. It's about um, the company and its its marketing strategy, and it's about consumers who want to feel good about what they're purchasing, mm-hmm. and who want to feel like they're helping a community um, without actually asking anyone in the community if they're being helped. Um, yeah. yeah. You also have the problem, right, that when any kind of free good is dumped into a community, that puts local suppliers out of business. Yeah. Um, we have very well documented and you know evidence that. Um, like the secondhand clothing trade, um, so donations to Goodwill, things like that, that that can get sold in, in communities that have hindered the development of textile industries, you know, which are traditionally a kind of engine to economic development. Think about the Industrial Revolution, right? It started with largely with textiles. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: I'll never forget that,
1: being in, like, uh, Liberia in 2008 and seeing a kid in, like, a Toronto Maple Leafs T-shirt. It's just yeah. It's, it's weird, yeah. Yeah. And it I speaks to that, that secondary that, market that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, I saw somebody wearing a shirt from a um, my Greek letter organization from college in Nairobi one time. Wow! <laughs> Very disconcerting. Um, but um, yeah, I mean these these are the kind of things that that have long term consequences. And ultimately, you know, children you you have a new baby, right? And and soon enough, you'll know that children outgrow only... shoes really quickly. She's probably already outgrown yeah. some stuff, um, <laughs> and it's. You know, a six-month solution or a one-year solution to a problem that is driven by much deeper structural issues yeah. that could probably be fixed with the amount of money you are spending shipping these shoes all over the world. Um, You know, why do kids get hookworm? Well, they get hookworm because they're walking through dirt that's contaminated with fecal material. Um, Well, why are they walking through dirt that's contaminated with human waste? It's because they don't have proper latrines in their community. So couldn't we just take the money for the shoes and dig some pit latrines that that are clean and sanitary and, and you would end the problem that's, that's driving the hookworm in the first place, right? And yep. probably the increased health benefits that you see on all kinds of level where people aren't getting waterborne diseases to as much of an extent. They're, they're going to be generally healthier, which leads to more economic productivity. Probably their parents are going to be able to, to afford their own shoes. And you've solved the problem in a sustainable way. Um, whereas the, you know, shoes, it's, I mean, it's like slapping a bandaid on cancer, right? Mm-hmm. It, it might make you feel better about the cut on your hand. Um, but you haven't really treated the the disease. Uh,
1: well, Laura, we've talked for a while. I didn't even get to talk to you about your Twitter prowess. And I'll, I'll just say, thank you. Or you know, we were talking earlier about that divide between academia and policy. Uh, and I think you're, the sort of approach to Twitter and your use and your, your facility with it is a good example of someone who bridges that, uh, that gap in a really effective way. Um, well, thanks.
2: It's, it's a fun, fun medium. Has
1: that, I mean, has that affected your career at all, would you say?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, but mostly in positive ways. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I mean, I treat it like it's, it's a, it's a great tool to make connections. It's a great tool for feedback.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, it's not the peer review process, but you can put an idea out there and say, you yeah. know, does anybody know of academic literature on blah 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 blah? And there's always somebody who knows the answer to your question. And so it can, you know, it helps with research. It helps with um,
1: and I imagine even, it's what got you noticed by magazines like the Atlantic or foreign Yeah. Policy, yeah. Know, I mean, it's that, led I mean, to writing
2: you, gigs. Yeah. It's led to speaking yeah. opportunities and networking opportunities and research funding. And wow, I mean, so. I have, I have consulting gigs because of my Twitter account. It's, it's really bizarre, there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's been pretty great.
1: Well, so. it's great. Well, everyone should follow and we'll be sure to put up a link, but thank you so much for your time. I mean, we Hey, thanks. This was a lot on. of fun Mark. That was fun. Uh, honestly, I felt like I could have talked with Laura for another hour, but I will spare you, dear listener, uh, another hour of us talking. But I really appreciate the perspective she brings to these things. I like she has a sort of no nonsense take on uh, international development. And frankly, I can get caught up in the nonsense myself sometimes, so it's refreshing to hear her perspective so listen we are chugling along here this is just episode two of what I hope will be a weekly thing that will go on in perpetuity if you have any ideas comments questions for me just hit me up on twitter is probably the best way to get in touch with me it's at mark l goldberg you can also send me an email at mark leon goldberg at gmail.com and let me know what you think until then uh, see you next week and here is once again John Carlo Volcano who has graciously given us his uh, composition that you hear taking us out of this podcast. Adios.